Hey, 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 welcome to episode, we're going to make this 85 of Bono Stuff, kind of going out of order, but I wanted to get this one ahead in the queue because Physiology First has this awesome announcement that they are making, and David and Lex are joining us on this episode to share what they are doing. They are changing the world, they are demanding better from breathing from the way we work with kids, childhood education, the whole thing. I'm going to let them go deeper into it as we go. If you can and you get some value out of this, please like, share, subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review, send it to somebody who has kids in high school. That seems to be a great audience that we can really make some big changes. If you know somebody who is in those administrative roles, those are the folks I think that we can really impact and have a conversation with that we can change the way things are getting done because they're getting done in a very inefficient way. So let's demand better. Go check out my other show, the Demand Better Podcast with Corona, David Corona. And uh, without further ado, jump into this episode, number 85 of Bono Stuff with David and Lex from Physiology First. Although I think Eric Clapton's gotten really crazy recently. I don't know. I don't know if you heard some of his stuff, but we got to no, change the world going. I haven't heard what's going on with that. Uh, I only follow some, you know, there's only so much we can follow, but guys, right. we have Change the World playing by Babyface and Eric Clapton. We are joined by uh, Physiology First, David and Lex. Lexi? Lex? Lex. Lex. Just Lex. Sorry. My dog's Lexi. Sorry. Got, got confused there. Um, but they have an exciting announcement. I've been following these guys and I've had David on before. I haven't had Lex on before. So, uh, but they have an announcement, exciting thing. We waited a few weeks to get their shit together so we can, we can have this big announcement of what they're about to launch. And I think they're going to change the world and Eric Clapton and Babyface will tell us all about it. Um, and we're going to turn that off because it gets distracting, but tell us, tell us what's going on guys. You guys are up in Maine right now. Up in Maine, Bo. I'm grateful for the chance to talk with you again. You know, we had a yeah, chance to talk. How, how long ago was our first episode now? Feels like a year ago. Uh, yeah, I'd have to go and right. look at the, the, yeah. <laughs> the numbers there. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I need to do a better job of like going back and looking at my all my episodes and the best of Bono stuff and all that stuff. But um, yeah, it's funny. One of my most recent episodes actually was with another fellow from Maine. Uh, that was episode 79. This guy, Chad Phillips, who uh, decided to live two years kind of in the wilderness, in the woods. So I don't know if you guys had a chance to check that. I was pretty interesting. I think there's some interesting corollaries to some of the stuff we're talking about here. But um, yeah, he was talking about he has like a, a tent yurt or turt or whatever. And, and, and he kind of talks about, uh, you know, just being having less of a footprint how uh, if you guys, you know, use normal toilets, that's about 6,000 gallons of water a year um you know things like that so trying to trying to really minimize his footprint and just seeing how how to live that way so he's up in maine you guys should go hang out with him i don't i don't know exactly the geography of maine and how close everything is but yeah so uh how's how's the weather up there so my our friend chad is is uh not doing too bad wherever he is well, spring is in the air and people's energy is up people's mood is up it's always amazing because i think that the weather is the greatest kind of um you know, we think about physiology and when we watch the seasons change and you watch mood change, we recognize just how much these things impact our mental state, our physical state. You see the whole vibe of the entire city just kind of come alive in springtime. Especially in some place like Maine where you really see, you know, during the winter, just a lack of sunshine, a lack of, you know, being able to be outside a lot of the things that we fundamentally need as humans. Mm -hmm. So when springtime comes around, it's just a whole new world. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Uh, Colorado's very weird. It's just you never know what you're going to get the next day. So it could be 19 degrees and snowing, and, and the next day it could be 72 degrees and, like, beautiful sunny weather, shorts and, and cutoffs. And uh, But I just double-checked. Uh, it was nine months ago. and that was Nine months. That sounds right. Episode 55, and this is technically episode... 89 i think so you yeah. are you are cranking having some great conversations we're watching everything that you're doing it's very inspiring and to think you know again nine months since our first talk a lot has happened on our end we're grateful for yeah. the chance to share the developments so it was about it was last may that we opened up Bo, as you remember the first sort of physiology-based mental health education center or another way to frame that is health education center yeah yeah. Where can people in the community come to learn about their mind, body, and brain? How do we invite young people into that process? And we have a couple of announcements on how we work and working to scale that model. Let's let's hear it, man. What's what's the latest? So the big thing from us right now is, you know, we have the opportunity, Lex and myself and our board of directors here, to help community members better understand the relationship between their body and their breath, to better understand the relationship between their body and their heart, and to look at some of the things that have. Um, Maybe they don't have a place in the traditional healthcare architecture right now. Where can somebody who's 16 years old go to get a basic physiological assessment removed from a lot of the stories that have been told about mental health and the state of the body? Pure baseline physiology. We have more young people coming to our center for things like that than ever. Uh, we have students coming from local high schools. So we're excited to really scale that model. We're building a professional development offering to train other coaches and allied health practitioners to take this model of understanding performance physiology, what is the science of how the body works most optimally? And how do we make sure that we're actually building bridges to integrating that into our community? Where, again, where can somebody go to, um, to learn more about their physiology in a way that not only teaches them, but empowers them and puts more health autonomy in their hands? Yeah, you know, healthcare professionals like ourselves included, you know, we've gotten really good at understanding the body in boxes. So if you go to X practitioner, like if we're taking mental health um, as an example, if you go to a therapist, they'll treat you in that specific frame. But it's time to integrate what we know about the mind, the body, the brain, and fundamentally change the world of healthcare. 100%. The future is convergence. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And I, I was so excited that, you know, you guys are announcing this and it totally ties into what I've been putting together and working on and you guys see, you know, have a lot more, I think, manpower and, and things going on and you're way ahead of me. But uh, that's why I love, you know, collaborating and having these conversations because uh, and I think we talked about it on the last podcast. We're, we're both big fans of Andrew Huberman and he now has a very popular Huberman Lab podcast. And, and I think uh, in the last one, we talked about the fact that uh, he talked about, again, teenagers before they get a license to drive a car. Mm -hmm. pretty big responsibility, uh, should have a license to, to how to breathe, like your physiology license. 100%. Um, and, and, you know, that includes the, the learner's permit. And, 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 you know, you should have to pass a few tests, uh, I think, before uh, progressing into that kind of landscape. And it, it, it will save us so much uh, upstream or downstream, whichever way you want to look at it. But uh, and I just had this morning uh, uh, another episode with uh, Rebecca Griffith, who's a physical therapist in the emergency department at a hospital here. And, and we talked a lot about that upstream downstream concept. And so a lot of what I've developed too is, is trying to sell people on this preventative model. I talk about where are we going to be 30 years from now? So, right. uh, you know, it's like a financial planner who's saying, Hey, let's get all your credit cards cleaned up because you're paying a lot of money and, and let's put that into a Roth IRA and the compounding interest will actually save us. So the same thing for your body. If you don't have full range of motion of your shoulder right now, at whatever age we're talking about teenagers with you guys I'm, I'm dealing with 
you know, 39, 40 year olds, uh, a lot of the time. And if those folks are not moving the way they should be and don't have the movement literacy, similar to the physiological literacy, um, there, there's gaps there and that's going to just compoundingly create negative things. Um, and I was talking about 1% better. So, so I love the physiology side of it. And again, I've tried to find really simple, easy ways to include some form of physiology testing myself, whether it's just breathing patterns, just looking at basic, mm -hmm. are you breathing with your chest all the time? Let's just teach you to breathe into your belly. That's a really simple one. It's less objective. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear you meant you, you were telling me a little before the call HRV, um, are we talking VO two maxes, you know, how, how are we creating that? And are we, is that going to be an app? What does that look like in, in the near future? So in the near future, it looks like us onboarding a small select group of really committed health practitioners and professionals who think that there needs to be a, a convergence between multiple fields, multiple disciplines, mm -hmm. and be a paradigm shift in health education and training them in very small groups to go through a model that we utilize here with a little bit more equipment than most people may have access to initially. But a lot of this is not equipment dependent. The more that we can measure, the more that we can manage, the more that we can understand the autonomic nervous system, and the more that we can get to probably the most important health conversation in our perspective of the 21st century, which is what is physiological resonance and what is physiological dysregulation? Because these are terms that get talked about in the vernacular of the, the social sciences as you know, we use the term psychiatric disorder, mental illness, we describe anxiety as a mental illness. And what none of us seem to collectively be able to grasp is that as the environment changes and as the technological landscape changes and as lifestyle changes, that fundamentally alters physiological state. And if we can't find a way to better quantify a resonant state from dysfunction, then we're going to put chronic physiological dysfunction into the box of psychiatric disorder. And when you have 275 million people diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, when we have one quarter of the kids in our neighborhood diagnosed with a mental illness and no baseline physiological assessment, it seems like we're gonna onboard ourselves into a drug crisis. So we're looking to train people who see that as a major problem of the future and asking what baseline physiological assessment should be requisite before we make the mental leap to a young person or anyone experiencing a psychiatric disorder. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we talked about it again on the, on the last episode here, and we're just, I think it's its one of the best things, and I've, I've used it ever since, and I've given you, given you credit as much as possible, but the concept of skills over pills. So, you know, it's getting that, that information out to, again, a lot of the parents that are in that decision-making tree, um, mm -hmm. and hopefully, again, the clinicians like you're talking about who believe in that concept of, hey, I got this kid who's been diagnosed with ADHD, um, and he's 15 years old and he's having trouble paying attention and, and like, what can we do? And, and again, anyone who's checked out and you guys still have your three channels, right? Uh, is physiology first distance project and uh, breathe to perform. So anyone who's checked out any of those channels, you see them doing the, the, is it the cold, uh, cold plunge and coffee or, or ice cold? What's the, what's the exact title? <laughs> well, you know, we, we have, yeah, we have, we have our, um, our iced coffee and the iced bath event for students, yes. but I'll, I'll let Lex even explain maybe uh, an example this morning working with a 16 year old student. And it goes back to our, you know, our, our ongoing narrative that physiology isn't learned in a textbook. Physiology yeah. is an applied science. So in order to understand something fully, how do I leverage my state? How do I lower my heart rate in moments mm -hmm. of stress? How do I understand the physiology of stress and anxiety? And maybe mo most importantly, how do we put these words, how do we take them out of the weeds? Because right. we've presented at more schools than I can count. We've asked young people and their teachers and the, you know, the counseling staff, 
who thinks that stress and anxiety are big problems? Every hand goes up. We've asked them who can define stress or anxiety. <laughs> no hands go up. So how could we possibly work through a skills-based program to regulate uh -huh. state if we're using these as cultural abstractions from an era before neurobiology? Yeah. Um, so I'll let Lex maybe explain a little bit of how to, what we were doing this morning with the student. And these are common everyday practices so that they become trainable, replicable skills. Yeah, so this is something that we were doing specifically this morning with a swimming athlete who's been coming here for two years now. Mm -hmm. um, and she comes here in the morning, which is awesome. Um, and she gets it done before she goes to school, which is also awesome and shows just how committed she is um, to making herself um, feel her best and perform at her best. Um, but this is something that we've done with many students, which is this idea of, can you taste fear? So of course we first define fear. What does it feel like? Does it feel like feeling breathless? Does it feel like a heart rate is increasing? Does it feel like your skin temperature is getting warmer? Maybe you're sweating. Um, so we project this idea of, okay, what is it? And then can I taste it before it's a moment where I'm about to give a presentation or I'm about to sit down for an interview, a moment where it really, really matters. Can we train it? Can we taste it? Can we get ready for it? So it doesn't just kind of knock us off when we actually encounter it into real life. So what we were doing this morning, we were doing a sprinting session and to warm up for the sprinting session, we were breathing through our nose the entire time. What we were doing is we were taking 10 paces or 10 um, steps to nasal breathing, inhale, and then we would go 10 steps exhaling through our nose. So then we would working go, on that breath exhale. Yep. We're running on that breath exhale. And then we would go 10 steps on an inhale, 12 steps on an exhale, and keep on bumping that up by two until you can't anymore. And that's a really great point where you're just like, okay, measurement wise, do I get up to 18? Do I get to 20? And then can I improve that as I go further? Because that obviously means that I'm able to tolerate more carbon dioxide rising in my body. Um, and then also, how does that feel? What does that feel like? Does that feel like what you think of when you think of anxiety, when you think of fear? And can I train that now? So then again, when I encounter it, I'm ready. Yeah. And to, to also to show, you know, young people how to lower their heart rate on command. Mm -hmm. We always say that if you can't lower your own heart rate, you have not been trained in the scale of stress management. Right. It's been it's been presented as, again, an abstract narrative as though this is a purely mental process. But when we understand how people describe stress, they describe stress through physical processes. They describe anxiety through physical processes. And our opportunity to work with Dr. Huberman five years ago now? Oh, like, yeah. In his uh, virtual reality lab at Stanford and to go through these experiments and saying, what is the underlying physiology of the anxiety? What are the neural correlates? Which is a larger question, but in this particular study, what are we looking at? What does the body do to prepare? Oh, pupils dilate, skin temperature increases, heart rate increases, respiration rate increases. And that allows us to at least begin a skills-based conversation of saying, okay, well, can you navigate your body with a sense of ownership to the point that you can downregulate high anxiety states and make sure that we're not living in a chronic state of readiness for an event that never comes because that's what generalized anxiety is. We're constantly ready, we're upregulated, and we're physiologically dysregulated, mm -hmm. ready for the event that is a chronic ongoing relationship to lifestyle, technology, and even stimulants. So these questions of asking what mm -hmm. tools can we give community members, community leaders, parents, teachers, and, and students to go from a state of dysregulation to resonance, quantify that and train that, why wouldn't that be the first essential step, especially before going to something like you talked about, which could be the use of a pharma pharmacological solution like benzodiazepines, which are becoming a skyrocketing crisis, not only in our, our country, but in our nation. 
Yeah, and uh, it, it brings up for me uh, kind of the exercise Lex was describing back when I was uh, learning to swim and uh, exploring the sport of triathlon. Uh, there was that uh, drill of can you get across the entire pool, 25 meters mm. or 50 meters, without having to come up and take a breath. And, and again, as you're working on that, and also how many strokes are you actually performing? So if you can be more efficient as well. But I think the, the I'm curious again, um, in terms of exploring the, especially we're talking about the youth, I played high school football. Our, uh, our head coach was also the chorus instructor. So he understood a lot of that diaphragmatic breathing and performing. Um, and we went to a nerdy school. We were Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Tech engineers. So we'd get made fun of uh, whenever, you know, we showed up at a game. But, yeah, we were going to outthink you. Uh, we might not be more athletic than you, but we were definitely going to outgame you in, in some ways. Um, but the, the question there for me is, uh, yeah, do, do we think that performing in front of public speaking, uh, music, sports are ways that this has just been going on for, for a long time where people, like, they'll figure that out themselves or some of the better coaches are able to, to give some of those skills um, where, where folks are figuring some of that out, the ability to, to you know, publicly speak and things like that. Um, is, is there something there? I know, again, you're, you're working with a lot of the, these kind of that age group, high schoolers, right? And, and in terms of sports uh, and, and that skill set, is, is, is that an avenue, I guess, that you guys are exploring? Or is it just like come to our place, uh, you know, at Physiology First, and that's where we'll, we'll make sure we get everyone to get those skills? Well, no, you know, we love to partner with coaches, we love to partner with schools, and we love to think that the future of coaching is teaching young people about their body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the I think that the narrative culturally, when we think about youth, mental health, again, I really kind of want to go back to you just using the term health, is, okay, this is like when I was growing up. We're dealing with the same kind of performance anxiety. We're dealing with the same kind of performance readiness uh, skill set. And if you were to do any lab experiment, well, can, can I can I jump in for a second there? Because you're saying the same yeah. kind, and and I know uh, we were doing the physiology first book club, and I don't know what happened there, but um, <laughs> if we dropped off on there, there's a lot going on. But one of the books we did there was Dopamine Nation, and so uh, they yes. make the whole uh, example that we're in a very different modern world of of stress, and again, especially the the the, the stress around every single post, every single how many likes that I get, and this person said something negative to me. There's just that constant feedback that, I mean, I, gr I graduated high school in 2001. Um, you know, there, there was a lot less of that uh, even then. And that's when Facebook maybe was starting to emerge and things like that. But um, in terms of the world we're living in, I, I, I just wanted to kind of maybe challenge you on the fact that it is a very different stress. Um, and it's much, it's much more intense. <laughs> that's exactly where I was going with that, Bo, is oh, that where you hear the cultural narrative says, this is like when I was growing up. This right. is like what I went through. And it's like, no, it's not. Okay. It's fundamentally different. If you were doing a research project of any kind and you were using an animal specimen, you would ask, has the environment fundamentally dramatically changed? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think if we don't take the influences of everything you just said, the influences of social media, technology, lifestyle into account, we could easily think that the person is dysfunctional as opposed to a society that isn't optimized for physiological function. So I think we're saying the same um, the same thing there, which is, I didn't grow up on an iPhone seven and a half hours a day. Mm -hmm. I moved, I rode a bike, I did a lot of the things that we took for granted, I think in a previous generation. And if you look at the rates of sedentary youth right now, not even from the lens of you know finger pointing, but just from the lens of how we've changed in terms of our ability to move our bodies, we fundamentally have to ask, imagine that we were able to look at baseline neuroregulatory chemicals mm -hmm. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, 2000, 2010, 2020. 
This isn't something that's obviously been done, but you can certainly see the increases in childhood obesity. You can see right. the increases or the decrease in physical activity. And if we can understand the physiological prerequisites for this thing that we want to culturally term mental health, then we can kind of ask, is this a dysfunction if kids are anxious and depressed when they are sedentary and living on, you know, on, on micronutrient deficient foods? Mm. Or is it physiology optimized, doing exactly what physiology does in a body working perfectly? Right. in a world not optimized for yeah. everybody. Taking away that cultural narrative of like, it's you, that's the problem. Like something's wrong with you and saying, well, like actually that's the environment and that's how my body's supposed to react to this environment. It really changes the game in terms of like what they're willing to talk about in that case. 100%, it depersonifies it. And uh, you know, we're in the last stat on this, and I forget your memory what year this was, because mm -hmm. the stats, the research on this is not um, as, as uh, readily available in terms of being recent. Remind me what year this was, Lex. 130,000 children aged zero to five prescribed benzodiazepines. Mm. Yeah. What year was this? That was the most recent data um, from 2017. 2017. Mm. And we went through a pandemic since then. So we're looking at increased autonomic arousal. And if we're going to look at the biology of this, increased autonomic arousal, increased sympathetic nervous system tone, digital stimulation affecting the autonomic nervous system, the visual system, the heart, the brain, the breath. And terming that a mental health disorder and putting kids on one of the most addictive possible drugs, benzodiazepines are incredibly addictive. And I think that we need more education in the community that doesn't seem as if it's attacking anything other than the fact that erroneously putting kids on drugs for a disorder that they don't have, the inevitable result of that is a drug crisis. Mm -hmm. And backtracking now and asking what could we have done, any of us, to offset the opioid crisis, which is a common mm theme right now, right? We look back on it and say, how did we end up with an opioid crisis? Well, can we extract the key critical lesson from the opioid crisis and make sure that we're not over-prescribing addictive medicine to kids, especially without looking at the baseline drivers for state first? And there's that scary kind of statistic that um, uh, I, I heard maybe 10 years ago now that uh, this is the first generation of children in the history of mankind uh, that right. is has a shorter life expectancy than the previous generation. So the first time in history that that's happened. Uh, so that's a scary thing considering all of our modern advances and, and yeah, how many folks are actually looking at uh, what's leading to that kind of thing. And we could all say, oh, well, the food is this or the technology is this and phones are that. But to actually say, yeah, what are we going to do about it? Same thing as climate change that's that we see. and. and uh, yeah, what are we going to do about it? So that's that's where you guys are coming in. And um, I wanted to dive maybe over to to HRV and, and talk a little bit about that. And uh, again, ask you maybe within the context of everything, uh, where sure. do wearables come into the equation? Is that something in your uh, system in terms of people understanding that? Do you Are you guys looking into partnering with any of the, the big wearables or any of that stuff? Really, really great question. So, you know, I think that to answer the question of what do we do and how do we act on this, I think that there's a missing link again in healthcare. And if you were to put yourself in the position of a parent or a student in the neighborhood and say, you know what, I'm dealing with a heightened sense of my, my respiration rate is increased, my heart rate is increased, I feel anxious or my family member does or my child does. You look at the pantheon of options open and you say, well, do I take them to a personal trainer who has an expertise in strength and conditioning? Well, that's not where the first mental, that's not the, not the first place the mind goes. That person's most likely not trained in understanding the autonomic nervous system. Do you take them to a general clinician or a physician? That, off, that option's often off the table. And they may not have the background in understanding at this point 
the relationship between the body, brain, and breath. So if we can find and train the practitioner that understands this relationship, we can look at things like heart rate variability. We're partnering with two brilliant um, practitioners right now in building out this model. And one is Dr. Jose Herrero. He's the um, assistant uh, professor of neuroscience at the Feinstein Institute. And he's done some incredible research and work on the way that breathing impacts and changes the brain. And the second is Anna Moser, who's a physician's assistant with a background in cardiac electrophysiology. So we can look at these two critical functions that influence the nervous system, breathing and the heart. And what we hope to do is leverage a lot of the latest technologies and walk people through them because we're not related to any of these companies. We have the ability as to be completely objective and say, okay, here's what the stage of development of this particular company is from our understanding, because they're all in different stages of development. Some are earlier, some are later, some are more advanced, some are uh, more accurate. Walking the person through the fact that, you know, there was a, a powerful statement by Tim Cook of Apple. And he said, Apple will be remembered as a healthcare company. That is a powerful and important statement. On my Apple Watch and on, on in the App Store, the companies that are making exponential leaps in health education are expediting your access to your own data and to, to physiological panels and readings. How do we help people understand what that means based on our experience and knowledge and ultimately pass on the autonomy to them to better understand that the companies shaping the future of human health are companies that you're going to want to know because they're going to know about you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the power of, in this case, having the data, having the information on yourself and being able to say like, okay, I understand that I made this fundamental change in the way that I was breathing or a breathing practice that I added into my life. And I made a change in my understanding about my body, including my heart, including my breathing um, and including how my brain communicates with my body in this sense of stress and anxiety. Now having that data makes a lot more sense to someone versus just having a list of stuff on your phone that you don't understand. So it's a really great opportunity to say like, we have access to this data, we have access to this information, and we understand it a little bit deeper. And what if we took about, let's say a 30 day window as an example and said, okay, we're going to introduce these basic state regulation practices. We're gonna remove some stimulants, which are central nervous system stimulants. And we're gonna look at things like blood pressure, resting heart rate, um, heart rate variability, sleep quality, activity level, the things that people are interested in tracking. And if we can make tangible changes over a significant enough period to make a difference, if it made a fundamental difference, we may be removing the, uh, the foundation for something like a misdiagnosis of a mental illness. Mm -hmm. If it didn't make those changes, well, at least you could check that box and say, I looked at physiology first and I've optimized my health in a number of ways. And if an issue that a person's experiencing still exists, well, then at least you've checked the fundamental box mm -hmm. before you've introduced a pharmacological solution, especially with an addictive component. Exactly. And you've, you've put somebody in a position where now if, if further treatment is necessitated or necessitated, necessary, um, then um, they're now in a position where they could actually either handle the treatment or even at least understand the treatment a little bit deeper because they've understood something fundamental about themselves. And to your point earlier about around proactive, you know, this isn't only for people who have an issue to treat. We have a lot of people who are asking fundamentally, how does my body work at its best? And when we can look at the science of how the human body performs at its best, now we're reshaping the model from reactive to proactive uh -huh. and saying, I actually want to optimize how this muscle in my chest, my heart functions. I want to know about this system of how my brain and body and my brain, my heart and my breath coincide to create a state that is more baseline, um, um, what's what I'm looking for, resonant 
And if my sleep quality improves, my mood improves, if, my, if I can lower respiration rate, if I can increase heart rate variability, if I can measure some of this stuff, it feels like the next era of health is figuring out how to leverage those wearable technologies because they will exponentially develop. They are in they are in infancy stage, many of them right now, but that won't be true in a few years. Right. And again, the work I do, and I'm I, I wear the whoop right now, and and you know, I've no uh I do have an affiliate link, but that <laughs> but unless you guys sign up uh through that, I'm not getting any financial incentive. But I use it because I think it's the best uh algorithm in terms of and the most accurate that I've seen out there in terms of bio trackers, um, in terms of recording, reporting, HRV. Uh, and, and again, they don't even have a, a, a watch. They don't have a timekeeping aspect of it because they want to make it all dedicated to the bio tracking. Um, so yeah, like you said, they're definitely still in the infancy stage to some regard, but uh, it, it, there is useful information there. So uh, real quick for anyone who doesn't know what HRV is, I think that term gets thrown around a lot and a lot of people don't right, understand. Yep. I'll let you guys maybe explain for folks not familiar with heart rate variability, why that's important. And again, where does that rank for you guys? And, and into, again, your upcoming kind of this project, where does that fit for you now and maybe into the future? You know, we look at it as one metric. And if you want to dive deeply into HRV, I would recommend there are some master classes out there because you could, uh, you can leave with a very, very minimal understanding. You can go quite deep, but essentially the heart doesn't beat like a metronome. You know, we get this idea that the heart is this clock. But there are milliseconds between beats and the milliseconds between the beats of each of our heart is a great indication of our overall strength, stress responsivity. Mm -hmm. So when we think about, we always used to love to use kind of jungle animal analogies, right? What are the agile animals who can face a stressor, prepare for it, and then shift out of that highly sympathetic autonomic nervous system state back to a state of relaxation with ease. And that's life. You're going into states of stress and maybe they're subjective stresses, maybe they're objective stresses. You run into a traffic jam, you get into an argument with somebody, you get a, an email right before an important meeting, something happens. Can the body shift and can it shift out? And I think that heart rate variability, as we look at um, the data, people assume, okay, I want to get optimal heart rate variability. So what's that number and can I meet it and can I improve it? But what we're really tracking is we're tracking it against ourselves. Mm -hmm. is, is my lifestyle improving or increase, is it increasing or decreasing heart rate variability? Am I becoming more reflexive and responsive to stress? And am I able to shift between the parasympathetic and sympathetic branches of the autonomic nervous system? Not that I want to be more of one or more of the other, but that I want to be able to shift. And if we see some of the um, practices, particularly around breathing and particularly around longer um, patterns of breath training. So I'm gonna give a, a, a big shout out to the work of Dr. Leia Lagos, who's mm -hmm. done incredible work on HRV and asking what level of exposure to something like a breathing practice that allows you to access a state where the systems of the body are working in sync can create significant shifts in autonomic nervous system tone. When do we start to see the kind of numbers that make you as a practitioner interested in health say, wait a minute, we are fundamentally doing something here that shifts us from a baseline sympathetic dominant nervous system, fight or flight, because people love rhymes, right? Mm -hmm. We can go deeper into that a little bit, whether that rhyme is the best encapsulation of the sympathetic nervous system. Well, they, they, people they think parasympathetic. Fight, flight, or freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze, right? And, right. and, and less, less rhyming. 
<laughs> less rhyming, yeah. But less rhyming, but God, that would, that would be a worthwhile deep dive at some point in terms yeah. of why a better understanding of what the human being does under stress needs to be incorporated. Mm -hmm. Because the freeze response is what you do when you can't flee or fight. Mm -hmm. You watch a shutdown response. Right, well, let's compare, that, let's compare that to the rest and digest being the alternative, right? So can, can you take us down a little bit of that rabbit hole, not too far, um, <laughs> of fight or flight versus rest and digest? And again, real quick for me, when I assess somebody's breathing virtually, which I work a lot virtually, is mm -hmm. I do just one hand on your chest, one hand on your belly. If you're breathing up here with your upper traps and you have shoulder pain, go figure. Um, but but you know, if you're up here and you're not able to access that belly breathing, to me that says, yeah, you're probably in a constant state of stress, 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 and you're probably never even getting to that rest and digest that we need to do. And to your point also about that, that uh, recoverability in that HRV, what that's really kind of looking at is uh, I try to make sure I educate anyone I work with and, and hopefully the listener here about, you know, doing the exercise, doing the CrossFit class, doing the, the Peloton is great, but it really is in the recovery. It's in the other 23 hours right. or, or, or yeah. you know, where you're truly rebuilding, you're truly allowing your body to actually take advantage of that stimulus you just created. Um, so, uh, you know, the people who do those crazy classes go crazy, crazy, crazy. And then, and then they're going into a stressful environment of work, 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 email, standing at a desk yeah. or sitting slouched over a desk. Again, that's that modern world we're talking about that. Again, a lot of students certainly don't have that option. They're kind of stuck in chairs, right? They're, uh, they're, they're in situations where, and, and there's a lot of stress you're going you're applying to colleges, mm -hmm. you're, you know, uh, you're dealing with all these hormones, you're doing all, all these different things. So definitely very interesting stuff. So yeah, I don't know if we can bring it back to you giving us a little bit of a differentiator between, uh, again, the parasympathetic sympathetic and, and fight or flight versus rest and digest. And, and again, how do we play around with that? Or are we just trying to educate people like you're saying of understanding these concepts and, and understand that you should be in a little bit of each. Um, so go do your stressful stuff. But if you can add in that little bit of medication of rest and digest, maybe every hour in between zoom calls in between podcasts in between public speaking appearances, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. How do you, how do you kind of uh, break those down for us? Yeah. And I think also just like I just as you were talking uh, a highlight of just the cultural narrative around stress, because I constantly hear like, okay, stress is bad. Stress is bad. And it's like, you're, you should not, you should avoid stress. It shouldn't be good. But the reality is if you're stressed about something, you likely care about it. And how unfortunate would it be if everything that you were stressed about that you care about, you turned away from. And so this idea of like good stress versus bad stress, like, of course, like chronic stress is not good. And trying to figure out, you know, things like a breathing practice, things like a movement practice, what are the things that we do that allow us to come back to this parasympathetic, this rest, digest, this more relaxed state um, is so important. But I think also it starts with, and that's something that we work with our students so deeply with is like, how do we change this narrative around stress first? And then let's dive into the different components of parasympathetic versus sympathetic. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, Matt Walker, who wrote um, Why We Sleep, the name of the book? Yes. Why We Sleep? Yeah. Uh, yep. He had a, one, in a wonderful quote. And he said, you know, when you fight biology, you normally lose. Right. And so I think the more that we can take um, stress and um, a lot of these words out of the realm of the subjective and out of the realm of character flaws. And we can say, okay, let me look at my aura ring data. Am I able to balance, am I able to navigate my sympathetic nervous system and my parasympathetic nervous system? And to answer to your question more directly, the first time that I ever went to a presentation where the nervous system was laid out for me, it didn't feel like common language. And so I think we can all fall into using vernacular that now becomes familiar. And we assume that people walk around and think, well, I'm an upright biological animal, I'm a homo sapien, 
I have a brain, a brainstem, and a spinal cord. I have a system of nerves. And when I stimulate this system, things happen. I stimulate digestion. I stimulate respiration rate. I think it was uh, Stephen Porges who said, you know, if we only knew what we were, what kind of animal we were at a fundamental baseline level, how much more agency would we have in our lives to control state? But often this gets written into cultural narrative and you hear young people who've been diagnosed or labeled with anxiety as if you can permanently uh, embody that state. I don't hear people say, I have hunger. You know, you experience hunger, you experience anxiety, you experience sleepiness, you experience excitation, but we've put it in a label that doesn't necessarily align with the latest science of human physiology and biology. So to your point, you know, when, when we let culture write the script, even of things like exercise, and somebody goes, I'm a hard driver, I'm tough, I'm mentally tough, I'm committed, I'm going to hammer myself at the gym, hammer myself at work, hammer myself at the gym again somehow or go for a run, and come crashing into my bed every night on fumes, instead of making a character judgment, we can say, well, let's look at the data. Is that having a net positive impact on your overall health metrics that are important to you? And is it important or having an impact on health metrics that you don't know are important? Where are your testosterone levels? Why aren't we getting blood panels done before we, again, make assessments around psychiatric health? So we, we've worked with many people who had no idea how to navigate something like their own hormonal panel. And right. that I think is, is what's um, most inspiring about the moment that we live in is if health educators like all of us listening to this probably and you and I can empower people to learn about their own health. I think you're, you're creating the kind of paradigm shift momentum where people become excited about longevity, excited about living and realize they have a lot more power than they've previously been told. Yeah, and that's that's kind of my next question, I guess. Um, a, a lot of fun thoughts coming into my mind that I'm trying to filter to, to, <laughs> to narrow it down. But uh, my, my main question there is, in terms of how this looks, I guess, to, to give a little more tangible feel for folks, if they're out there listening to this and saying, this is something I'm, I'm interested in. And the way I work with folks one-on-one -on -one is I think of, I, I tell them, after six months of working with me, uh, and even whether that's online or in person, I think you're going to know more than 99% of healthcare and, and fitness providers about what you need for your body and what works for you. And we're going to go through some elimination, introduction, changing habits, all that good stuff. So the question is, are, are, is, is this kind of program outside of the testing you're doing? And I want to maybe get a little bit more on that tangible, uh, what, what you guys are doing. Um, but again, the, the question for me is, are we trying to deputize each individual who goes through these programs? And after three months, they're certified. And again, they get their license to be like, hey, you passed stage one of whatever, understanding your own physiology, which again, I love the concept. I just want to know where you guys are at with that. And, and again, that's what I try to get to um, for sure. And that's where I was really excited uh, that you guys are making making headway on this, but I'd love to hear where you're at with um, that kind of like dichotomy of, again, like, can we get you off pills? Can we can we get you to understand again, breathing practice, movement practice? Yeah. Which I love those terms as well. But yeah, where where you at? If they, well, I, don't know if I think there was a question in there somewhere. No, there absolutely was, and I, I think that there's maybe two questions. One is how are we training practitioners, and we're taking practitioners through a model that we've tested for years in practice to say, okay, what can you do with somebody to assess baseline physiology? The, the credentials of the future, the, the healthcare solutions of the future do not yet have an existing credentialing process. Otherwise, they would be a problem that was being solved in current motion. So to understand that these are new problems, autonomic nervous system dysregulation in a world of technological hyperstimulation is a fairly new problem. So we're training practitioners to not only understand how to look at the data, how to look at the combination of respiration-based strategies, 
to improve heart rate variability, and to give someone more control over their nervous system, but the communicative strategies that make this work come to life for the 16-year-old or the 20-year-old or the 40-year-old who says, I want to get a physiological assessment. I want to better understand my body. How do we make sure that we're not speaking over or we're not speaking in the weeds in terms of even the, as we went to the, some of the language around the nervous system, how do we fundamentally train practitioners to train others to better understand the nervous system stage one of this credentialing process? Mm -hmm. And to understand that many people are coming into this with very little understanding of the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. right? And if we can make that exciting, because it's really a conversation about personal agency, power, accessing calm and focus on demand, recovering better, not just a conversation on, on pure physiology, now you have someone bought into a model where they may not be doing physical fitness. That's fairly new. They may not be training for quite a while. They may not move into a training environment. They can fundamentally learn about their autonomic nervous system. They can learn how patterns of breathing, patterns of vision, and simple lifestyle changes impact autonomic nervous system tone. They can measure it. And then we're training practitioners to guide the people that they'll work with in leveraging some of these technologies and taking them through the process and saying, okay, here's the future of health being built on a digital spectrum. How do we make sure that you leave our coaching environment, however many sessions we're working with you for, we have multiple durations available for people, with a greater level of understanding of your brain and body, with a few tangible skills around breathing, movement, vision, lifestyle, and then how do you continue to track whether your behaviors are moving you towards dysregulation or towards physiological resonance on a more ongoing basis? Yeah, you know, um, you, we were talking about the example of um, the op opioid crisis a little bit earlier in the conversation. And a lot of what we've been learning about, um, I'm getting my doctorate in physical therapy, and a lot of that what we've been learning about specific to the um, opioid crisis was now they're trying to push physical therapy because obviously right. op opioids were prescribed because people were experiencing pain. The idea now is can we go to physical therapy, you know, work on the injury, work on the um, the issue with movement or whatever it may be so that we can avoid going on to these pills. And so in that case, in that crisis, there was a, a doctor, a already created career path or profession mm -hmm. that somebody could meet those needs. The goal with this, with this increase in anxiety, increase in stress, increase in depression that we're seeing in students, we're crying, trying to create that profession that's able to meet this crisis. And, and, and to go through with practitioners how you might coach or couch that in your community, because there's a lot of ways to reach out. We have a community of parents here who aren't really sure if taking their son or daughter who's experiencing a high level of anxiety to a therapist without a background in physiology is a great next step, but they need a next step. They need something that they can do next. And as, as we've seen that snowball roll, where an adult who doesn't have a great wealth of knowledge about their own physiology begins to communicate with a practitioner with any degree behind their name, things start to sound palatable. So it, suddenly saying, well, why don't we try this medicine? Why don't we try this medication? See uh -huh. where things go. And you think, well, okay, this is a path out of this cycle of my loved one feeling discomfort. Well, let's give it a shot. They have no idea the addiction rate of benzodiazepines. They have no idea that it's a very, very hard road to get back to if you've never assessed whether baseline physiology was the problem. Let's take something like an accelerated breathing rate or chronic hyperventilation. So what we hope to do with the program, what we aim to do with the program, is train practitioners who can take those baseline assessments, scale them in their communities, 
and let community members get a baseline physiological assessment first and then make any other decision with that higher level of agency about how their body functions and whether it's in a state where anxiety is the natural response to lifestyle behavior or even things like overbreathing, other things that go under the radar, I think, in the current medical landscape. Yeah, yeah, and, and it reminds me of the quote from uh, Dan Heath in the book Upstream that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And we look at the results of our, our current state of health uh, the last one of the last uh, big statistics, other than that, you know, first generation to not have a longer life expectancy than the previous. The other really scary statistic is, uh, and I believe this was in the New England Journal of Medicine, that less than 11% of Americans are metabolically healthy. Um, and again, the way that study was carried out uh, included five different metrics of health. And so you might be okay on two or three of them, but you know, only 11% uh, of Americans were clear on all five, um, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, it's a pretty you know, big deal. And, yeah. and again, the cost of all this is huge. Um, people argue about, you know, uh, recently in political stuff, Medicare for all, uh, universal basic income, all these different concepts. So I guess my question coming back to you guys is, is again, that system is set up to drive us towards medicine. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of times it's, you know, people defer to their general practitioner or their primary care physician for nutritional advice. Yep. Um, and, and what is the general advice given out is, is eat less, exercise more. That's got to be the, the solution. And that's been proven time and time again to not be the, 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 the end all be all by any means. Um, and most people fail with that. And there's just a lack of resources there. And so it yeah. sounds like the goal here is or one of the main aims is to provide resources to these doctors down the line and have people who are mm -hmm. credentialed in this concept of physiology first. And again, you know, ever since I saw your stuff online, that's why I was like, well, I, I got to connect with these guys and I got to see what they're doing. And I want to find where I can help. And, you know, I'm still hoping we can do more uh, in-person stuff and, and, you know, ice baths and iced coffee. I still love that. Um, but, you know, the question, I guess, uh, coming back to it is, yeah, what's is, is there a realistic vision in the next five years? To have, a, 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 you know, what's the what's the 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 company vision mission goal of of having, you know, is it a hundred uh, verified providers that that people can can you know relate to or refer to in, in these situations? What's what's is there something like that? Is 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 that going on? Well, you know, the the big goal. It's going to sound very big picture, but I think the big goal is to create a revolution in health education because right. I don't see that happening in the community. And I think that as stress and anxiety become more normalized and become uh, more common, that things like the outlets that maybe got you and I started, mm -hmm. we have a we also own a gym outside of our nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. We own a gym. There are monster truck tires out front. We're often swinging kettlebells on the front lawn and sprinting in weight vests. That may not be the first mental. Um, you know, the more first marker on the landscape of I'm going to improve my health, it actually starts to look more scary. So as yeah. we introduce health education into the community, and we really work to create a narrative that says the, the skill of the future is you learning about your own biology. And you might not have to work out. You might be coming to a health education empowering seminar or an event where you learn about breathing and your brain. If we can scale that, we scale that nationally and globally. We have ambassadors through Physiology First bringing this into the community. Now the only path into health and fitness education is a little bit more accessible, and that's a goal. Right. As far as hard numbers, and I'm glad that you asked that, you know, we've seen models um, around accreditation in general shoot for quantity. And our goal is exactly the opposite. We're really looking for the 
committed, deep practitioner who wants to build this skill set over the long term. And it'll really be determined by how many people respond to that. We would rather train less people and train them well and give them right. in-depth access to the work that Dr. Herrero and Anna are doing. We're going to have um, some pretty incredible research equipment coming to Physiology First University. And maybe Lex can explain what, uh, what recently happened when Dr. Herrero came up and the grounds of our pilot study. So the vision is to get as many committed allied health practitioners as possible to be part of a revolution in health education. And the number of them will really be interesting to see how many people come out of the woodwork and say, you know what, this isn't in my community right now and I want to pioneer. Yeah, you know, qual uh, quality, not quantity really is taking hold here. Like if we have sessions where we're only connecting with five people at a time, right, yeah. I mean, we want to be able to go deep and go, you know, in not only in depth, but also really cover the wide variety of ways that you can communicate and approach this with different people. Because again, different people are going to be interested or might come in from an interest in different ways. Like we said, an athlete might look at the gym and be like, well, this is where I want to start. And that's where they're going to get the most information of learning about their bodies and being able to apply it in that realm. But somebody else might say, like, I need to start with breathing. I need to start with something that isn't athletic because that makes me scared. Yeah, we, we had, you know, the other day, for example, we had a call and someone wanted to bring their two 16-year-old boys, not for anything athletic. Mm -hmm. They were dealing with issues of anxiety and they wanted to talk about their physiology. We did a 90-minute session. There was no exercise other than Lex's um, description of how do we taste fear and physiology irrespective of psychology? Mm -hmm. We have them on air bikes practicing different breathing cadences, uh, measuring their blood oxygen saturation. And when they begin to feel this feeling, this cascade physiologically, they can understand that it's a, it's a response. They can learn to manage it. And that was very, very exciting. So when, when we can help practitioners understand how to work with a variety of people who may come in and want to assess this, then we can begin to tie them into a larger project uh, that we're really excited about. So we're kicking off with Dr. Jose Herrero, a, a six-week pilot study on the long-term implications of breathing in the brain and how breathing changes the brain over the long term. And some of the equipment that we have coming here, Boa, is measuring chest versus abdominal breathing. It's measuring um, its wearable scalp EEG, and it's also wearable skin tech. Yeah. And we were able to, we gave a presentation in which um, actually one of our Physiology First board members, Ethan Smith, who's 15, um, jumped up and was actually put into this, it's a cap um, that actually does the uh, EEG reading. And just being able to take that out of the weeds, because I think, especially when we're talking about the brain, you know, we've been talking about the mm -hmm. brain, body, mind this entire time. But when you're talking about the brain, I find that that's where sometimes people either, you know, maybe tune out because it seems like too big of a concept. Mm -hmm. Like, what is this thing? What is this computer inside of our, you know, skull? Um, but being able to actually pull that out of the weeds a little bit and say, well, this is the brain wave that's coming from this particular, you know, if it was the premotor cortex, we're really actually breaking down what what are we seeing? What are we feeling? What is, what's do? actually happening? Um, and it was really amazing being able to see a room full of people actually see this on a screen, some mm -hmm. of them for the first yeah. time. Brought it to life for them, and, yeah. Yeah, exactly, bring it out of the weeds. And then part of the larger vision, Bo, is imagine that you were working through this program and you invited a group of high school students or you were working with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, you were connecting with youth in your community, and you can tie them into the free Physiology First University platform, our actual platform, which is free for students. They can now join ongoing live breathing groups. They can now connect with each other. And sometimes it takes having a community of people who say, hey, we breathe together for 20 minutes every Thursday morning. 7.30, which we, we do. And I want to 
engage in this long-term practice and I want to look at the data. Sometimes just having others to do that with you can be really critical, especially if you're interested in proactive health as a youth and you are the anomaly as opposed to the, the norm. How do we connect young people who are interested in health to each other? And how do we help them scale that narrative where it's it's cool to care about your health and we have right. to help shift that paradigm? Yeah, that's, that's what's coming up for me as a huge, the gap, like you're saying, uh, the way I approach things, I, I try to get people to, one of my biggest things that I'd love to get off the ground or, or make more commonplace is an annual movement screen of every mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And what's your nope. movement literacy? And we're looking at that very objectively. Um, and I think we can say like, hey, if you don't hinge so well uh, and your movement's a little bit off or you have some imbalance like in, in the lunge pattern and now you're doing squats, there's you're going to probably be causing some issues as uh, these things become more, more relevant in the 30s and 40s. Uh, less so in the teenage years, I think. But if less we're, we're looking at scholarships and performance, and that becomes a whole different conversation. But the gap for me that, that I'm trying to come up with, and sorry, I think you were going to say something there, but um, is trying to sell this kind of preventative model and saying, hey, mm -hmm. if you invest $3,000 with me over the next six months, I can almost as, as guaranteed as possible, that's going to turn into hundreds of thousands of dollars of not lost work time, of being able to do the things you love to do. And like, and just living a better, more fulfilled life. Um, but it's very hard to quantify. It's very hard to show that research. So that's the struggle I've had from a marketing standpoint, because mm -hmm. I've tried to sell this very different thing. And everyone just still comes to me with like, I'm still having knee pain. I've seen 10 practitioners. Right. Um, so, so that's kind of the language where I'm still struggling of like, let me teach you how to breathe better. Um, and for some people who have back pain, like that automatically will fix because of the actual, not just the physiological response, but the actual decompression of the low back. And, and again, taking them out of that stress response, or again, it's taking them out of this. Everyone loves a good neck massage because we're doing 23,000 breaths a day in our right. traps and our, in our levator scaps. And so it's great. It, and then those always feel nice when we release them. But if you're just going to keep doing the same thing, um, we're just, we're just, you know, driving ourselves into the wall every freaking time. So my question, and I, I you were going to say something, I cut you off a little bit, but, um, is, is, yeah, where's that disconnect? How do we overcome that? How do we, is, is the goal again to get you know, the, the caps and things like that in 10 different cities uh, across the country or, or world? Well, to, to, you know, that's a great question, Bo, because we want to make sure that this program for practitioners who are interested is actually equipment free, meaning mm -hmm. we can show people how to go in home. We've done a lot of in home services. When we think about the practitioner who may not own a gym, we can train people to go in home and do these basic physiological readings, understanding respiration and basic heart rate. And then we can work with the practitioner to say, okay, well, if we had this available, you'd have this much more data. And a lot of that's honestly available on the app store without existing wearables. Mm -hmm. But the, the, larger, the larger question there becomes, once we understand a little bit more about where somebody is at on an autonomic nervous system level, how do we inspire long-term lifestyle change? And at our actual gym here, students come in, we only train barefoot, we've only trained barefoot for six years, so they can immediately understand how their foot works. We teach breathing before movement so that they, we teach breathing before movement so that they can understand how their how their rib cage and their pelvis mm -hmm. works and how pressure management works and what exercises are better for them. And the most cynical thing I've ever heard, though, is people say, How are you gonna get young people excited about this? I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Young people text us every day and say, Is there an ice bath today? Is there a workout? Mm -hmm. Just ask them good questions about right. their own body and make it about them. And the number one thing you're gonna hear from them is why am I just learning this now? Yeah, no, that's that's 100%. Right. And also like at the start of our conversations with our students, with actually our adults, with anybody who comes through here, it's like, what are your goals? 
What do you want to, where is the end goal for you? What is the end game for you? And everything that we're going to do in here today is going to help you towards that. And that always has to be at the heart of the conversation because otherwise, it, like, it seems like it's so far removed. And so really making sure that every time we're teaching somebody about movement, about breathing, we're always tying it back to where do they want to be? 100%. You know, and it, not, not to end on a down note, though, but at least to put a little bit of a, of a point on the fact that right now, if we look at 40 million U.S. adults diagnosed with one quarter of the kids in Maine, we look at an obesity rate that I think is hovering at the 48%, 48.5. I think we fundamentally, as people who care about health, have to ask, can we honestly ask, what will that look like in three years? What will it look like in five? What will it look like in 10 in my neighborhood, in my community? And if I can't come up with an answer that says it's going to somehow look better, people will feel better. They will be healthier. They will get to experience the vibrancy of their full health. Then, then I'd, I'd love to hear the roadmap for that. But I feel like it's up to pioneers. And I, I, I certainly think of you as one of those pioneers who will create that roadmap and say the future of our community's health is up to people who care about health scaling a narrative that doesn't demonize people or, or judge them for not knowing what they don't know mm -hmm. and puts us all in that white belt of before I ever knew about my health, it was the last thing I thought about. Mm -hmm. I didn't walk around thinking about optimizing my breathing and looking at my HRV. So it's only about finding the captivating story and narrative that maybe you would have heard before your health was even on your radar that would have got you to say, you know what, I care about this. And if we can do that, I think that we can solve for the problem. Yeah, and to bring kind of like a more, um you know, exciting and uh, just kind of a way to look at it as well is just the fact that at least it's tangible. At least we can say like, okay, the health of our nation is declining because of obesity, because of our nutrition, because of our lack of movement. At least it's tangible and there's a place now that we can start as health practitioners versus it being some invisible force where you're like, well, what do I do? And, and one more note on that, Bo, is that, you know, traditionally, if you look at strength and conditioning, for example, you know, there are numbers Okay, what can you deadlift? What can you back squat? What can you, there's some quantification system. But when we look at our physiological health, if I know nothing about my resting heart rate, heart rate variability, what's a normal respiration rate? What's a normal tolerance to carbon dioxide? What are sleep scores that make some sense? Then I don't have any roadmap to mm -hmm. resonance. So our main goal is to create a roadmap back to physiological resonance in the context of a revolution in community health education. Yeah, powerful stuff. And uh, it reminded me of the quote that uh, a healthy person has a thousand wishes, uh, but a sick person has only one. And, and unfortunately, again, it's we're all kind of waiting till we're really sick or we're relying on that medical system to, to just deal with those symptoms as they come along and not really looking at that big picture. And it's frustrating stuff. And, and, and again, like you said, I'm trying to, I've been trying to work on, <laughs> on that preventative sales pitch for a while. And uh, again, it's it's hard to get people to invest in in those things, and and um, it's it's a very fun fun, but also scary. And uh, you know, the, it reminds also me it reminds me also of the the recent movie Don't Look Up. If you guys have seen that one, um, you know, I've I've only heard quite a bit a about, about it, but I've not seen it yet. Yeah, it's basically, I mean, they they do. There's a comet coming toward the Earth, and it's an allegory for climate change that everybody's like. They're, they're literally like the politicians, like, just don't look up and you won't see the comet that's actually hurtling toward Earth and going to destroy us uh, versus, you know, there was the, the, the people being like, hey, like, there's a comet. Look at the comet. Um, and, and it's, you know, you can only argue science and, and uh, facts so much um, versus kind of the, the cult of personality and where the science and research is actually telling us. And the, the science is in on a lot of these things. Um, and it's just get how do we figure out how to get that to 
the, the teenager or the 40 year old who's dealing with two kids and stressed out and all that stuff. And how do we get them to say, I have the roadmap for you. So, uh, yeah, there's some exciting stuff here. And again, I think we could keep going for hours and hours. What, and, and what I'd love to end with Bo is just, just kind of speaking to what you just said is, you know, the historian Yuval Harari points out that what, what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom? What is the evolutionary advantage? Well, for up till now, it's been cooperation. It's been the ability to tell stories that we can believe in in large numbers, right? And I think a lot of us in the public narrative right now with so much division, maybe feel like that skill set is less accessible. People are having a hard time agreeing on anything. But I think if we can tell a story that the other thing that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is we're an animal who can learn about its own biology. Mm -hmm. We can hack ourselves, we can be less hackable. And if we're feeling states that are undesirable, we can work our way through them by understanding the science that's the narrative that we hope to scale in our community, that understanding your physiology is a power tool. Do you want that power tool? If so, let's go. Exactly. When you show somebody that they're not stuck in the state of anxiety or stress, but they actually have a way to get out of it and actually feel really, really good and put that on the map of potentials, you just open a whole new realm of doors for somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. Scary, exciting, weird, weird times we're in. <laughs> Uh, again, appreciate you guys being on here. Anywhere appreciate you both so much. Go, yeah, and I'm excited for for next stages and and uh, you know our next chat after this. Uh, but yeah, anywhere folks should go to get more information on you guys, these projects we're talking about, anything that they should know as we sign off here. Absolutely, Bo. So we're launching the version two of Physiology First University. And what we want anybody to know when we talk about version two is when you look at Physiology First University right now, you're looking at version 0 0.0000001. We're going to build the V2. We're going to build the V3. It's a long-term vision that takes incremental progress, getting insight from people on what's working best and upgrading. So we're launching the version two in about two weeks. We're going to have the accreditation program starting April 30th. So in two weeks time, by the time that you go to... Um, if it's two weeks time from the time that we're recording this, uh, you're gonna see the version two at physiologyfirst.org. You can always follow us at physiologyfirst on Instagram and Twitter. And you're gonna see the details on the performance physiology certification and where we're taking that project. Very exciting stuff. I can't wait to see it uh, all play out. And we're gonna to try to change the world. Eric Clapton, baby face. Uh, and we're gonna sign off there. I, can, I got at least 1% better today. I'm, I'm definitely excited and motivated. To, to see what we can do in the near future here and uh, go change some lives. So thank you guys for being on. We're signing off. Uh, we'll talk to you all next time.